in the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajil farajahum. Brothers, sisters, and respected viewers, wherever you may be, Assalamu alaikum jami'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And welcome and thank you for joining us once again, this time on a new series, inshallah. New series of lectures entitled Life, the Islamic Answer. We are going to try, based on the discussions that we had and what we feel are the needs and what is most relevant and what is most urgent in terms of our needs to discuss and to study Islamically. The aim is inshallah going to be to study the principles of Islamic living as they are explained and as they are found directly in the Holy Quran and in the narrations of the Holy Prophet and the Imams of Ahlul Bayt The bottom line from all of this is that we want to see based on the complexity of the world in which we live today what does it really mean to live Islamically, to live in an Islamic way based on the very high level of complexity and relativity, and inshallah we'll explain that in a second, so that we know in every case where we are acting or not acting, where we are speaking or not speaking, that that decision is actually made based on Islamic principles. So that we are not living our lives simply by following the masses and accepting what we are told and what we are fed and the, the, the mass consumption narrative that is basically pushed on everyone. We want to live in a critical way and the lens through which we want to look at reality, we want it to be Islam. That's the gist of what we're trying to do in this series of courses. So today, as an introductory course to, to this series, we want to focus on a part of this question. If the question is, how do we live Islamically in this complex world? We need to first understand what it means to say that this world is complex. We need to start by understanding the relevance and the urgency of this topic. In other words, why are we wasting time or spending time or investing time and energy trying to understand this topic. And as we said, there are many other topics that we discussed and we thought could be extremely interesting and exciting that we could study. But in the end, we thought this one is should be given priority because of its urgency and because of its relevance. So today's topic is supposed to be to highlight this complexity of the world and the relativity of the world and at a very high level, each one of the topics that we're going to be talking about can be on its own a series of lectures. And this is not the purpose from these. This is just to give a flavor of, or just to present the lay of the land that this is the backdrop. This is the background against which today, the youth, the adults, anyone who lives in the civilized, developed world, this is what we're seeing. This, this is what we're confronted with in today's world. 
From the beginning, we can say that human beings have always lived in groups, small groups, communities, larger communities. The smaller communities form larger communities and eventually societies and in today's world, humanity. Everything is connected. And if we go back in time, we know that this is the reality of human beings. On one side, because we are social creatures, because a human being is not really happy living in entire seclusion from the rest of humanity, your true happiness can only happen as part of, can only take place as part of a larger whole, a larger group of human beings with whom you live. So there is that hardwiring, biological and sociocultural hardwiring that's in, in all of us. And beyond that, there's also the argument that has been made again and again that it's simply a lot more effective and a lot more efficient to live as part of a larger group. And we're not going to go into those details. And then there's another argument that we can add today that may not have been as strong or as powerful in the past, but today for sure it is, which is that today it is simply impossible to live disconnected from the rest of humanity. If that was the case one day in the past, as humanity evolves, and this is something that inshallah we will come back to later when we'll present how the Holy Quran talks about human societies, how they come together and why they are needed and why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created human beings this way, we'll see that underlying all of this is a truth that we can understand theoretically and we can also understand it today in simply by looking at how we live, which is that as humanity evolves and matures, the more advanced we become, the more complex we become, the more mature humanity becomes, the more interconnected we become, the more complex we become, therefore the more we need each other, therefore we need to understand how to live together better. Okay, so this inshallah will explain in much more detail once we go through the series. We'll understand why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created human beings this way. This is just something that we want to establish for now very quickly. The second point that we need is that if human beings are living together, any group of human beings, big or small, it means that there will be people amongst them who will rule over them. There is a leadership component for a group to be able to live together and to operate and to function. And the leadership does not need to be one in everything. In a lot of cases it is. If you have a king and that king is the type of king who will decide everything in their kingdom, then you have all of leadership concentrated in one person, centralized in one person or in one function. In today's more complex societies, democratic societies, federations, republics, for instance, in Canada, for instance, you'll see that there is a distribution of power. You have a central government that deals with the entire nation for the things that they, they think are more relevant and makes more sense for them to deal with as a whole. And then they break down all of this locally. So they create provincial governments and they give them certain powers. And then there are within that 
municipal governments, and they have other powers, and they're even more local, and there is no overlap, so that everybody has their own function. Regardless of the system that you put in place, there has to be those who lead, those who ha are given power or who take power. We're not discussing the legitimacy of that power, but there are forces, there are entities, there are bodies that will lead for this group of human beings to live together. If we go through history, and just based on logic, those who are going to dominate another group of human beings, they're going to fall into one of three categories. The first category is those who are truthful and sincere in their efforts, in their desire, in their objectives to the leadership of other human beings. That's one group. And generally speaking, if we look at humanity, they have always existed, they exist today. These are people, as we said, who are sincere, who are truthful in their intentions. A lot of thinkers, a lot of philosophers, a lot of activists, a lot of reformers fall in this category. The issue with this category, however, is that usually they are unable to achieve their goals. So that's the first category of people who have thought about or who have attempted to dominate and to rule and to propose a way of ruling. Those who are truthful and sincere and at the same time incapable or unable to achieve their goals. And for those who doubt whether they are capable or not, human history is evidence to be looked at to see has humanity ever achieved this lofty result and this lofty goal and aim of actually being able to achieve the just society, the ideal society that everybody talks about in a way that is fair and good for everyone who lives in it. The second group of people, very quickly, are those who are not sincere in, the, in their intentions of ruling others. In short, they are usually doing it for selfish reasons. They are after their own gain, they are after their own benefits, their own interests, they are not looking for the greater good, whether it's of, for the people around them, for people who will come later generations, so on and so forth. They are interested in themselves, and they will do whatever it takes to ensure that that interest and that benefit is secure and achieved. So we're not even going to talk about whether they have the means or not, because to start with, they are not interested in the greater good and the public good. And then we have the third category of people. Those who are truthful and sincere in their intentions and who are able to, if they were given the chance, to actually allow humanity to achieve those very lofty ideals, these noble ideals, where everybody is able to live in a fully happy life, in a just society, and so on and so forth. From our worldview, and this is not the time to go into the details of this, from our worldview, the only people who fall in this category are the people who are following the divine teachings entirely. They are the only ones who are capable of achieving that type of society for society as a whole, for the greater good, as well as every person in that society, and who are acting based on truthfulness and sincerity in their actions. They're not in it for themselves. They have nothing to gain for it for themselves. And so usually in this category, 
as we said, we only find the divine prophets, the people we refer to as prophets, messengers, people that are in direct contact with God, who are taking those teachings, and we'll explain all of this throughout the series. Why is it only them? And in short, it's because they are following what the creator of this world and the creator of the human beings and the societies of human beings and what he is telling them works and what doesn't work. And because they are acting based on truthfulness and sincerity. The issue with these teachings is that first of all, those people usually have a lot of enemies. Because what they're trying to push and what they're trying to explain does not sit well with those who are interested in their own self-interests. That's one. Secondly, their teachings are filled with distortions. Some distortions are not intentional. People misunderstand. A lot of time passes by and people no longer understand what was meant initially. Things get lost, things get omitted, things get added unintentionally. And there's also a lot of intentional distortions. As we said, we've come back to the first point that we mentioned here and we said they have a lot of enemies and so one of the means that those enemies use is to distort is to confuse is to change those realities and then we have the neglect and the ignorance around those teachings people who simply do not know about those teachings or people who know about those teachings but only partially they've never heard about them or they've only heard some of them Let's call that the first layer of ignorance. And then there's a more, a second layer of ignorance, which I would guess and I would say the majority of us might fall into. We know enough about some of the teachings. Where it fails is that we don't see the connections between the teachings. And so we fail to understand the spirit of those teachings. We fail to see how they all connect together into one whole. We understand this specific teaching on its own. We understand that specific teaching on its own. But once we understand those teachings theoretically, when we come to the real world, the real world is a lot more complex. It's not black and white. There's a lot of gray. So how do I apply? Where do I give priority? Which one of these teachings becomes more important? Do I focus on myself, or my family, or my community, or my society, or the world? Where do I put my energy? Where do I act, and where do I stay silent? Or are there different ways of acting? Which one should take precedence? This is where you start to see the importance not only of understanding each individual teaching on its own, but the underlying principles behind these teachings and how they all connect together in a way that we can refer to as, generally speaking, the spirit of the religion, the essence of the religion, that you can then take and apply to the different situations you go through in real life, regardless of how real life is going to change. This is, of course, as we are claiming and as we demonstrated in the previous series, this is all based on the idea or on the belief that it's because we believe this is a complete religion, a universal religion that has teachings that are supposed to cover every aspect of life, every question and every situation, every circumstance that you may face. If that is truly the case, then you should be able to do this. You should be able to see 
where in every case that you deal with and you face, which of these principles applies, which is given priority to, and how you're supposed to act or not act in every situation. That's all on one side. On the other side, let's look at the world today. So these were the big general theoretical foundations. And now let's look at the reality of the world. And again, this is very high, high level. And I'm trying to summarize a very large number of studies that talk about what today's reality and what today's world's world looks like. There's entire, entire institutions and entire organizations today dedicated to studying the state of the world. Big think tanks and huge investments from countries to look at analyzing what does the world look like today from different angles. And where is it headed? What are the general tendencies? Where is it going? So let's take a summary. This is a very quick summary taken from those who are experts in these fields from all over the world, specialists looking at these aspects of the world. Let's start with the more general issues that I think the majority of us see and face. This is the stuff that hits us loud and clear. It doesn't need the deeper complex thinking because we see the right and wrong or what we believe is to be the right and wrong right, right away. We see oppression, we see poverty, we see injustice, we see misery, we see wars, we see human trafficking and child trafficking and so on and so forth. Specifically in the case of Muslims right now, we see all sorts of issues. If you look at different places in the world not that long ago, the Muslims in China had huge problems and huge injustice and oppression. Myanmar was before them. After that, Afghanistan and it continues. Iraq still has huge issues. Yemen is living in the lowest level of famine and poverty in the world right now is in Yemen. Not long ago, the whole issue of Palestine and we all just witnessed all of that. So this is the stuff that doesn't need a second layer of thinking. This is the stuff that you see first and foremost. Any human being who sees this will say, this is oppression, this is injustice, there are issues happening here. Something needs to be done. That's one layer. Second layer. Let's look a little bit deeper at issues related, for instance, to globalization. What is globalization? Everybody talks about globalization. The majority of us perhaps hear about globalization as this phenomenon that is simply bringing all human beings together. The entire world has become a small village, right? It's a global village. That's globalization. Globalization is in fact, this is not how it started and this is not the purpose of globalization. Globalization is just another word for what used to be called colonialism, colonization. When you have a land or a certain area where you can invest and where you can extract resources and suddenly that land or that area is no longer able to give you what you need because you've used everything, every opportunity you have in there, you need to expand. You need to go look for other areas where you can use all the means and all the power and all the wealth and all the mechanisms you have in order to extract those resources. That's in the very materialist way of looking at things, and this is how things have always been done in the past. The world shifted towards a much more knowledge society, and inshallah we'll detail what we mean by knowledge society in the next weeks. The world shifted. The capital of the world is no longer material. 
It used to be. You had to, have, you had to own land and buildings and machines to have capital, to have power and wealth, to effect change in society, to change the laws, to make them in your uh, benefit, and so on and so forth. The world woke up at some point, not that long ago, in the past few uh, decades, realizing that the true capital, much more effective and efficient and good and powerful capital, does not even compare to the material capital, is information. And if you order information properly together, it's called knowledge. And so they started moving towards knowledge societies. Because knowledge and whoever controls it, controls everything else. You want to control production, you want to control wealth, you want to control laws, you want to control societies, and so on and so forth. You control the circulation of information, the production of information, the production of knowledge. Inshallah, we're going to detail all of that in much more detail and a lot more elaboration in the future. When the world moved in that direction, when we say globalization, we mean that in order for a certain group of people who already hold power and who want to expand that power and who want to expand on their wealth, for instance, they need new places and new mechanisms of working. This translates in the past into colonialism or in today's terminology in globalization. Always with the promise that everybody who is going to be impacted or touched by this is going to be sharing in the wealth by me expanding my company on your area and your territory, for instance, we're both going to get richer. The truth, however, is that everybody who knows what happened once globalization really started working, is that the concentration of power became even more than before, and the elites, the numbers of elites was reduced and they got a lot more power than they had before. And this is what triggered the entire movement that was referred to as Occupy, and the 1% and so on and so forth. And the studies on this are very clear on where all of the wealth and power in the world was, which was in the hands of the very few already. And once the trends of globalization started, where it ended, which is those very few suddenly looked like they were a lot compared to where it was going. Okay? In one way, this globalization can take place through military wars. This is very clear. That's the part that everybody sees. You expand and you force yourself on those areas. But there's also other types of, you know, it's referred to as intellectual wars, wars and psychological warfare and so on and so forth. Or the Cold War and everything that was used, mechanisms that were used, for instance, between Russia and America for, for decades. War does not only take place in a military way, right? There's a confrontation constantly ongoing. So you need to, for that colonization to work, you need other mechanisms and other tools so that you can effect change and integrate yourself into those areas and territories so that you can take those resources. And so to increase wealth and to increase power, in today's world, the best way is to have the right political system. To have the right political system, you need to have the right social system that produces it. To have the right social system, you need to have the right intellectual and ideological and cultural system that produces the social system that produces the political system, or what we can just refer to as the right ideology. 
So you need to export an ideology to areas that are not producing the goods you want them to produce or giving you the power or the wealth that you want them to produce. And so you work through these mechanisms. And this is where you get into values, where you have to change the values of a society. Everybody believes in human rights, but how you define them and how do you apply them? Everyone, everybody wants to have a democratic society where everybody is given freedom, but how is it applied? What are you given and what is taken away? Is it applied equally everywhere? And of course, this is all done through, as we said, many other values, including education systems, including cultural systems, including science and innovation, and so on and so forth. And as we said, the end result of all of this, the promises were to the entire world that the riches would be distributed and more people are joining into the wealth. And the end result was the protests of Occupy and so on and so forth. Huge links between all of this and what was happening at the political scene and it continues to happen at the political scene today. On the one side, you have multinationals, gigantic corporations whose budgets and whose incomes are now bigger than those of entire countries, who want to be able to do what they want to do. They have one bottom line, which is their own private interest. And now they are everywhere in the world. That was the whole point of globalization. So they want to be able to act like they want. But then you have the states, each with their own, the nation states, with their own laws, and they have their own standards, and a lot of people in there are trying to protect their populations and to work truthfully and sincerely based on the local benefits and the local realities of their people. And you have these very big, gigantic corporations trying to act even faster and different and outside of how nation states function. This creates new problems in the world. The problems of political instability. The nation state is now stuck in the middle between different realities. You have these multinationals that come together and they all agree together, as we said, many of them now more powerful than countries, that they want to act like they want to act outside of what the nation states are trying to impose on them. And this is where you see their influence on places like the United Nations, or the World Economic Forum, which is not even a, a true political entity. It's just different people coming together to exercise their power however they feel fit. But today they are extremely powerful and extremely influential and present in everything that happens in pretty much any country in the world. And so on and so forth. You have the International Monetary Fund, you have the World Bank, you have, and so on and so forth. You have all of this happening, and we can call this the globalist pressures on nation-states, where a nation-state is now part of something that is constantly pressuring it, bigger than it, because it's trying to work at everywhere in the world, at an international level or a transnational level, and the nation-state is in there trying to do its thing in that context. And then you have the people who are completely mistrustful of those nation-states. They have given up, they think the nation-states are not able to create the societies that they want them to create to create the justice and the ideals that they're looking for. So they're fighting the nation states from within, again from outside, with ideas like libertarianism and anarchy and so on and so forth. 
So they are trying to destabilize the system however they can. Today, everybody's talking about Bitcoins. What are Bitcoins? Inshallah, we'll explain Bitcoins later. We'll, we're going to need that when we'll talk about Islamic economy. We'll explain what Bitcoins are. Bitcoins are a type of currency. They call it cryptocurrency. Why were they created? They were created by people whose entire aim, the only purpose of Bitcoins and other cryptocurrencies, is that they want to create a financial system that states cannot control. Because they have given up in believing that the states are going to create the just societies that they want. They see different states printing their own money, playing with the value of money, making people rich or poor overnight, so on and so forth. They disagree with their tax policies. They see how things are happening in the world and the financial system. They say, we're done with this. We're going to create our own financial system. A financial system that cannot be controlled by human beings. We're going to put everything in the computers and the computers are going to dictate everything based on mathematical formulations. And this is cryptocurrencies. It's impossible to break it. It's cryptocurrency. It's a currency that is impossible to break for human beings. It has to be done through very complex calculations that can only be done by computers and supercomputers and so on and so forth. This is one example of groups who are trying to destabilize. They have given up on the idea that the nation state is able to secure the justice and to secure the ideals for societies. The laws are not enough, the constitutions are not enough, and so on and so forth. Let's continue with this. That's one example. You look at wars. We talked a little bit about that, the weapons of mass destruction, the amounts of money and time and research invested by countries in developing weapons, the military research, for the majority of us, normal human beings, we can't even understand the numbers. When we look at the numbers of dollars being invested on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis into military research for weapons, weapons of mass destruction, there's something that was created in 1947 called the Doomsday Clock. I don't know how many of you have heard about this or not. There's an entire website. It has a page on the internet. These were physicists and atomic nuclear physicists who created this in 1947. It's a metaphor. They say that humanity is going to live for one day. If the clock reaches midnight, it means humanity will have destroyed itself. Through the science and technology that they have created, they will have destroyed themselves because they're not applying ethics to it. Unrestrained scientific and technological advancement will destroy humanity. And one of the biggest threats is nuclear weapons. Everybody until this day, they talk about the disasters and the devastation of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Today's nuclear weapons, a nuclear weapon today is 1,000 times more powerful and more destructive than a nucle the nuclear weapons that were dropped on Hiroshima. And there's a lot more of them today than there were then. And a lot more countries are investing money and time and resources, developing even more powerful ones. This is an example of things going on in the world. And we see this in the news every day. There are people who protest, people are trying to change the laws, people trying to prevent countries from developing new nuclear weapons or weapons of mass destruction, for instance. 
to go back to that doomsday clock, in 2018, the doomsday clock was at two minutes from midnight. If you go, the website is there live. You can always see it. They explain to you all of their research. They look at everything happening in the world at all times. It's a fascinating, fascinating website. You'll never leave if you go in. In 2018, they considered humanity, these experts on all of this, all of this science and technology, they said humanity is two minutes away from midnight, from self-destructing, from self-destroying itself. In January 2020, which is almost a year and a half, it was moved to 100 seconds. So one minute and 40 seconds. We're 20 seconds closer to self-destruction as a humanity. Should anything be done about this? Should we be talking, thinking, participating, doing anything? We'll leave that at that. The environment and the climate. Many thinkers believe that the next world war is going to be about water. They say the last world war is going to be about water. There are huge populations of Earth who will no longer have any access to clean water to use. And countries will invade other countries for water. This is already happening, by the way. If you understand geopolitics and what happens, you see that there's usually always a, a water discussion in the background, but people don't always see it. That's one issue. How, what are we doing in our lives if we understand that the specialists in the field on Earth, all of them are saying water is a huge issue for humanity. Maybe not today, but in 20 years, we're going to all feel it and see it. One thing to keep in mind. Another, if we look at the environmental issues, and as we said, to take water as one example of these, it's not just that there is a destruction of the environment. We can look at it on its own and say, of course, that's bad in itself for values and ethics. But maybe there is more. Because as we said, it's impacting the lives of human beings. So even if you don't agree with the more ethical dilemmas that this creates, there is certainly a human rights component to this. If we look at, let's say, the way human beings eat their food, a lot of the food that we currently consume in today's societies is farmed. We're no longer actually going into the wild and getting our food. Everything is farmed. Even the halal food is farmed. Well, there is study upon study and documentary upon documentary about the issues of farming. First, it starts with the horrible conditions and the mistreatment of the animals the chicken, the cows, the lamb, the sheep, and so on and so forth. That's one layer. Then beyond that, they started talking about the horrible diseases that this is causing us when we eat these animals that are full of stress and full of these grains and supplements and so on and so forth to make them good and chunky and greasy and fat like we want them. Okay, so this is another layer. It has huge issues and huge implications for our health. And then you go beyond that. And when you go beyond that, you start seeing that today, farming animals means we're destroying the planet completely because there's so much waste produced to have this large quantity of cows or sheep or fish, for instance, and what's happening in the oceans for farm fishing and non-farm fishing. So now there's a huge movement that says, 
The solution is, and this is being pushed, and you can see it in documentaries, you can see it in books, huge movement, whether it's sincere or not. This is the solution that's provided. People should become vegetarian. Or, perhaps, one step further, they become vegan. So that you don't consume anything from animals, including milk, including eggs, that's vegan. Vegetarian will consume the, the eggs and the milk. Is that the solution? Well, today, people who have been talking about this, we are being told that by those who really look closely at all of this, they say, but there's another agenda. Those who are paying and financing and investing in these documentaries and these books to tell people to stop eating meat and to stop eating fish, we're destroying the oceans and we're destroying the lands and we're destroying the water because of this. They are the same companies that are now patenting all the food. Right? So there soon will no longer be any food that you can just plant. And that's why you have seedless watermelons. Yes, people are happy because you don't have to spit out the seeds. But the truth is you can't replant a seedless watermelon. It has no seeds. And all of the plants are being bioengineered. All of their genetics have been modified. Which means that they are owned by the companies. The seeds are no longer there in nature. This is where those companies are headed. So this is on the side of vegetables and fruits. And on the side of meat, there is what is called today cultivated meat. So that you no longer have to harm an animal because the meat is being grown entirely in a lab. And so you will simply be fed meat that is being grown today in labs. And it exists and it is being sold. And I am sure that very shortly it will be in a supermarket near you. And then we'll be wondering, halal or not halal? Right? If it's grown entirely in a lab. Maybe that's the solution. Maybe this entire thing, this is where it's headed, and maybe it's headed in the right direction. Maybe it's not. We don't know. But this is part of the world we live in today. Should anything be done about any of this or not? More than that, if we look, for instance, at the ideological component, and I'm running out of time, so I'll go a lot faster here. What do we mean by the ideology that we live in? So beyond all the material stuff, there's a whole lot of change happening to the way we think and the way we simply live. As part of this is that we now live in societies that are hyper-individualized. The only thing that matters in today's societies is you. Not your family, not your friend, not your society, not your community, you. And the most sacred and important thing is your freedom. And you can do whatever you want so long as you feel free and this gives you whatever happiness you feel like getting. Anything and everything that was considered a fixed truth in society is removed. This is the modern and postmodern world. Inshallah, if there's interest, we can talk about that. How did the modern world get created? What contributed to the modern world? Modernity and post-modernity. Today they talk about post-truth and post-fact. There's no more truth, there's post-truth. We're after the truth, there's no longer truths. There's no longer, no longer good and bad, right and wrong. This is relative. You can change it overnight. There is something that used to be called God and religion that was fixed. Today there is religion. A lot of 
you know, those of the, who, who control this narrative, they present it as though there is no more narrative, uh, there's no more religion. That's a, the new narrative, the new terminology, that just religion is a bad connotation. It's been replaced by other words. The religion is still there. It's just, it's a religion as they say, a la carte. Today's religion is, there is no authority outside of you. You get to pick and choose what you want to put together and you call that sacred and holy, and this is religion. And this is coming in our communities that already exists. And this happens at every dimension of life. Scientism is one of the new religions of today. Scientism is making science into a religion. There's volumes written on this. How science is used as a religion. And it is sacred and you can't criticize it. There is a church of science. There is foundations and beliefs and, and, and every element and item that you find in the creation of a religion, you find it in today's science. And you have your high priests and you have the way people follow certain rituals to achieve certain goals. So if you just accept science as is, there is an issue. Science is a construction of human beings who put truths or information together in a certain packaging. You could package it in a different way and make those say something different. So that's studied in the philosophy of science. If you take all of this applied, for instance, to gender issues, let's take one example, gender issues. We used to live in societies where there were men and women. And together they formed the nuclear family. In today's society, one of the biggest crises they have right now, it's ongoing right now, is the crisis of masculinity. It's been going on for about two to three years now, very, very high profile, high level. Is it still okay to be a man? Is it still okay to display any masculine traits in society or not? That's a debate. That's what they're debating right now. Because masculinity is toxic. In itself, taken raw, masculinity is considered toxic. So what do we do about this? What do we eliminate so that a male or a man can still be a man without being toxic? Is that even possible? That's a big question. And then as this is going, this is really led by the last wave of feminism, the fifth wave perhaps, fourth or fifth wave of feminism, leading that attack. In parallel to that, there was another movement, which is the trans movement, which is those who say that there is no man and woman and you can be whatever or both or none or so on and so forth. Today, one of the other crises that they're dealing with now is in addition to masculinity, which all the men in those societies say no one cares about us, we have a crisis but no one cares. Now there's another crisis, which is the feminists believe that they are being erased by the trans movement. The feminists were all about empowering women. And if you look in our communities, feminism is rampant, but we'll come back to that at a later point. Some points are valid. They need to be addressed. But to take feminism as a whole and try to apply it to, a, to an Islamic worldview, does it actually work? We'll come back to that, inshallah. But the issue is now, even in the Western societies, where the feminists were trying to create and carve out a space for the women themselves, now they are saying that because of the trans movement, 
The women have been erased. They are no longer allowed to be women. Everybody has to fall into the fold and accept that there is no such thing as a man or a woman. So that there is no such thing as a man is considered secondary to the feminist. But that there is no such thing as a woman is causing huge problems. And so every day in the news, you see an article. We have a trans athlete who wants to compete and who wants to race in the Olympics against a woman. But they are biologically a man who identify as a woman. Are they allowed or not? In all of professional sports, all of you who follow professional sports, I'm sure you have heard at least some of this. This is actually happening every single day. Okay, so what do we do? What is the Islamic position with all of this? What is the Islamic answer to all of this? How do we deal with all of this? Let's keep moving quickly so that uh, we, we finish. And I'm, I'm not going to go through the rest of the examples, I think as an introduction. The idea was that we simply provide an overview, a lay of the land, when we say we live in a complex world. All we were trying to do is to show that it is indeed a complex world. And there's a lot of gray, there's a lot of no longer the, e the ease with which we could say before this is black and this is white. The ease with which we could say this is wrong and this is right. In today's world, whether you contribute or not, you are taking a position. If you take time to understand, everybody's saying eat healthy, for instance. If you spend a little bit of time understanding, some of you may smile or laugh. If you understand the avocado industry, if you understand the poverty and the misery and the injustice that ensues because there is an avocado industry for you to be able to buy that avocado in the supermarket, if you knew what was happening behind the scenes for the planting and the destruction of the people who can actually plant those avocados, all the way to when you actually buy it, I don't think any of you would buy an avocado. I don't think any of you, if you knew the injustice and the oppression and the misery that is happening behind the scenes that we don't know, for the cocoa bean, that is the foundation, that is the basis for chocolate, if you understood the misery and the pain that happens to entire groups of human populations for that chocolate to actually land in front of you in the supermarket, I don't think any of you would eat chocolate, true chocolate from cocoa beans, not the synthetic just sugar and water stuff, and so on and so forth. Or if we go back to the example that we gave about the cultivated meat. Yes, there is a destruction of humanity. Perhaps we should do something about it. Maybe some people are saying this is a solution. That we use synthetic meat, lab-grown meat. These examples, I'm trying to use these examples to show you, one, it's complex. Two, it's urgent. Because it's happening now. This is not you know, a fantasy world. This is happening today. It's been happening for years, actually. And three, I'm trying to show that if you do something, if you choose to wear a certain logo or to drive a certain car, you are contributing to something. And if you choose not to, you're contributing to something else. And if you choose to speak out, you're contributing to something. 
And if you choose to stay silent, you're contributing to something else. And if you know, that's one layer. Then you need to know enough. Then you decide, do I act and how do I act? In a lot of cases, you don't even know. You only find out when you go looking for it or you cross paths with it somehow. But because of the control of information, you have to wonder, when you don't know, is it by design? Is it that someone does not want you to know and so you don't know? And when you do know, is it also by design because it's to the benefit of a certain force, a certain group, a certain body that needs you to know this so that you act in a certain way and they know how you will act or not. We didn't talk, for instance, one of the things that's happening in the world, it's been going on for a decade or so. There's actually an entire field today called attention economics. The worth, the value of a human being, human beings have been commodified now. Human beings equal a dollar sign. Each one of us, there's a dollar sign on our head, depending on who we are and what we can do. So we have become commodities. They say we're commodified. We've become objects that you can buy and sell. One of the most important things or the most valuable thing in a human being today, based on all of this that we ex explained, including being in a knowledge society, digital economies, and so on and so forth, globalization, is what's researched in attention economics. The most valuable thing that I can get out of each one of you is your attention. Your attention is worth power, is worth money, is worth wealth. I can do everything I can if I have your attention. For how long can I keep your attention? So you have to think. In a day, how many minutes, how many hours of my attention is going where? Because this is how I'm being analyzed by those who are engineering the world I live in today. This is how they view me. This is how they analyze me. And if you go, go back and Google and research attention economics and happy reading. Go find out what they say. And see what it means for you today. What do we need to be doing about all of this? How do we live in this type of world in general? And the answers are not easy and straightforward. As we said, even those who are crafting this and they think that humanity is moving in the right direction and engineering all of this, as we said, there are huge crises in society in all sorts of places because of this. And if I'm mentioning these, it's because these are dilemmas. By definition, a dilemma means there is no easy answer or there is no answer. You're doomed if you do, you're doomed if you don't. That's why it's a dilemma. It's a paradox. On both sides, there's a sacrifice. On both sides, there's a difficulty. On both sides, there's something not very straightforward. The more you dig, the more you find out that makes you think twice. What's the next move? What's the right move? So with all of this said, the idea was that we come up with a course, which is inshallah this course that we introduced today, where we were trying to explain the urgency and the relevance of a course like this one. We want to have a course where we begin by going back to the foundations of our religion. To see what it says about some of these issues. Does Islam have anything to say? As we claim, it's a religion that's supposed to talk about everything. 
It's supposed to be good for every time. Who knows where humanity will be in 50,000 years? But we believe that this religion will be good enough for them then. Or two million years. And we believe the religion will be good enough for them. Today, we already know that we live in a much more complex world than let's say a thousand years ago. People then would probably not be able to imagine any of the issues, a single one of the issues that we just described. But we believe that our religion has answers to all of this. And it has at least the principles, the general principles, and this is the key in our religion, the general principles that if you understood them enough, you will know how to apply them. You will be able to look at your life and everything you encounter, and you'll be able to prioritize. And you say from these principles, this is one, the one that applies. Or there are five that may apply here, but this is the one that has to come first because of so-and-so. And it becomes very clear. And your life is no longer going to be the life of mental health issues and crises and loss of meaning and relativity and nothing makes sense and everything is overwhelming and I'm depressed and nothing makes any sense and I, nothing has any meaning. As we're seeing all the time nowadays, every single day in the news, there's a new mental health crisis somewhere. And our communities are not immune to this. But we need foundations. So we need to go back to our religion and try to extract those principles. We're going to try to rebuild the human being from scratch. So as a human being, as an individual, if I had the chance, if I had the choice to build myself Islamically, how would it look like? That's what we're going to try to do. And if this is done, then my next phase is looking at us as a community. Yes, we began with saying that human beings can't live alone. We have to be part of a group. And that group has to have leadership. And all of this has to come together in a way that everyone is happy. And all of these little elements make point, make sense on their own. And they make a lot more sense when you put them all together. And I can live my life in a happy way as an individual, in myself, in my mental world, in my ideological world. I'm at peace with myself, but I'm also part of a community. And I'm also part of a society to which I contribute, knowing how I'm contributing in a critical way. And I know that whatever I'm doing falls under the general heading of good. I'm an agent of good in the world. I have awareness of the past and I have awareness of the future. And I know that what I contribute to is going to push me, not only me, and my community, and my society, and humanity in general in that direction. So inshallah, we will begin right from what Islam, inshallah, we will show that very clearly, what Islam considers to be the first most fundamental issue or topic or theme in Islam, which is knowledge. And we'll spend a few lectures explaining what Islam says about knowledge, inshallah, the approach is going to be that in every case, inshallah, today we went a little bit overboard because we have a lecture after this, so there's not a lot of time for a discussion. But inshallah, the idea will be that following the lecture, and this will be the key for the success of this entire series, is that there's a good discussion. And inshallah, this will trigger a discussion in our communities too. 
even beyond our group. Inshallah, it begins with our group. Because I don't know about you, but I don't know how many people are talking about this. How many people are making that link so that we know how we're supposed to live and to live Islamically, to understand our relationship with ourselves, our relationships with others, our relationship with God, our relationship with nature. It's not really being explained or presented in this wholesome way so that when you put it all together, the bottom line is you say, I have my answers from Islam and I know how to live Islamically. وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين